0: I'm Sandra Galea. I uh, am uh, my, my day job. I serve as the Dean of the School of Public Health at Boston University. I'm um, an epidemiologist and a physician, and uh, I have for you know, a couple of decades been uh, writing about the epidemiology of um, mental health from a population science perspective. What we found in the context of the pandemic is that. Um, the burden of mood anxiety disorders rose significantly. Now, that wasn't a surprise necessarily. We know that after large-scale traumatic events, the prevalence of mood anxiety disorders goes up generally about twofold. Um, The truth is we haven't haven't had much data about infectious disease outbreaks. There's been some, but not much. But nonetheless, there's reason to believe that it would behave the same way as, say, after a hurricane or tornado. Um, But what was surprising in the context of COVID is the increase was about threefold, um, which is higher than uh, what we previously had. And of course, it stayed and it uh, the the uh, increased prevalence of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress symptoms remained high over the course of about a year and a half, which is as good as the evidence is right now. Um, uh, with' starting to decline in the, about a year and a half uh, into the pandemic. But of course that's um, represents a really long period of time for an elevated prevalence of um, mood anxiety disorders, and not just the elevated prevalence of people who meet categorical definitions of mood anxiety disorders, but a shift in the number of symptoms in the general population, which means more people who report one, two, three symptoms, who so of course do not meet criteria for us to say that they have depression or anxiety, but an increase in these burden of symptoms in the population and. This level of increased burden of symptoms, really worldwide, is unprecedented, certainly in um, the modern empiric era of mental health epidemiology.
1: So, what's going on there? What is it about the pandemic that is leading to these increased levels?
0: Well, I, you know, I said, I said, uh, I realized I said that a couple of minutes ago. Um, what was surprising was, and, and it was surprising insofar as we haven't seen these types of elevations before, but in some respects, it wasn't that surprising, right? Because the pandemic was a traumatic event in all senses of the world. world. A traumatic event is an event that is ubiquitous, affects many people, that threatens people's sense of safety. And that's exactly what the pandemic was so it was a large-scale ubiquitously experienced traumatic event and the fact that there was such a higher burden of mood anxiety disorders with it is at some level could have been expected um, you know I said it was surprising just because we haven't documented it before but I think at some level it could have been expected
1: we know that people are more likely to be affected by these common mental health disorders if they have social inequalities and health inequalities. What did you find out in in that in that sense with this study?
0: Yeah, so so one of the perhaps the one of the most important findings from that work and from the work of others is that the burden of um, mood disorders was experienced deeply unequally. That people who had fewer assets before the COVID-19 and who had stressors that were exposed because of fewer assets were much more likely, like four times more likely to report um, depression, anxiety. So by assets, we mean very concrete things like um, owning a home, like uh, having um, children in stable schools, having a, a reasonable employment. Um, By stressors, we mean the converse of those, meaning difficulty looking after your kids during a pandemic, difficulty looking after your parents, losing your job, um, being worried about making ends meet. So people who had that spectrum uh, of low assets, high stressors were four times more likely to report um, poor mental health during a pandemic. And that is actually quite a dramatic increase and um, uh, difference, which essentially means that People who were stably housed, had decent employment, were able to protect themselves during the pandemic, weren't worried about their children, weren't worried about their family, weren't worried about their parents, actually had relatively low likelihood of an increased burden of mood disorders during the pandemic. And I think this is important because at the same time as, as the pandemic has been happening, we are seeing a growth in awareness of the importance of mental health in a population level that's unprecedented, which is perhaps reflected by the fact that uh, you have a um, active social media presence around it. These are, these are new phenomena. And, um, you know, we've had high-profile athletes and influencers who have been open about uh, their depression and anxiety. And that's all really important. The, the, the challenge with that in the media landscape and in the public conversation is that it gives the impression, perhaps implicitly, if not explicitly, that um, poor mental health is a problem of the privileged, when uh, when in fact the, the population data are quite the opposite, actually, that uh, privilege buys you out of having poor mental health in many ways. And, uh, um, and that's what these data show.
1: So what are the implications, do you think, of that specific study in terms of policy, in terms of interventions for people?
0: Yeah, well, I think the implications are twofold. Number one is that... Um, Uh, with an event like COVID-19, with an event like the stressors of the moment, there will be greater population burden of poor mental health, which should push us to think proactively about increasing mental health services, both in private and public institutions. That's at the population level. At the more specific level, it's to recognize that this um, burden of poor mental health is being experienced more by the... um, by people who already are at a greater risk of marginalization, of poor health due to other conditions, who already are struggling to make ends meet or having a hard time dealing with the stresses of daily life, and that group is now accumulating poor mental Ill- poor mental health, which is resulting in accumulation of disadvantage, and that group is going to need even more help. So it does it does highlight that um, we get a group that is accumulating more and more disadvantage and from perspective of equity to use a word that you introduced earlier but um i haven't woven into my answers yet it what these events do is they deepen inequities because if you recognize that the group that is already under duress is now experiencing even more problems in the form of poor mental health then you can readily see how that group is now peeling away and it's becoming um it, it it is having a harder and harder time than the groups that are doing well. And the other thing that's important to recognize about this is when I talk about the groups who are under more duress, we're not dealing with a small segment of the population. I mean we, we are dealing with, depending on how one looks at it, um, um, half the population easily. So when we're talking about the group with low assets more stressors, I'm not talking about a small segment of population. I'm talking about a lot of people, I'm talking about a majority of people. It is just the majority that we often do not talk about because history and science and politics and media are written and described through the lens of the haves, not through the lens of the have nots, but most of us are have nots.
1: Certainly, here in the UK, we find that a lot of people who suffer from stigma and discrimination and these kind of social and health inequities are people who do not use the conventional mental health system don't feel like it's for them, um, have lots of barriers to getting support. What's going on locally in your area to address that? Yeah, it remains
0: a real challenge. I I, I think uh, the challenges to access in the, and not knowing the UK picture well, I don't think the challenges to access in the US are any better than what you describe in the UK. The um, mental health data continue to show that uh, at best, half of half of the people who could benefit from mental health intervention actually get mental health intervention. That's it. Is at best, if not even as low as a third, which suggests, of course, a combination of um, limited mental health resources and barriers to access. And we know that those access are differentially distributed. That people who are uh, um, more marginalised and have other axes of social exclusion are less likely to access mental health services. So, you know, there are depending on where you live in the US, depending on what system you're in. As you know, in the US, we um, do not have a real national health system of any kind. Um, So it depends very much on people's linkages to health systems, largely through employers, um, as to whether or not they have access to mental health services.
1: Why should people come and hear your talk and what are they gonna learn from you?
0: You know, my, my approach with the talk is to, really frame it around lessons that we've learned from covid and um i i'm going to organize my talk around seven lessons that i think emerged and i will use covid as the anchor to show data that uh, emerged during covid but then link it into the larger picture to talk about how in order to deal with population mental health we need to recognize that mental health ultimately is nested in political social economic realities And anyone who who is interested in population mental health needs to also engage with those realities in order for us to create a mental health friendly cities, just to focus on cities, for example. That's what my talk will be about.
1: So for me, the the, the next question, the follow on question is, do we have to become mental health activists, almost political activists, in order to be mental health scientists? Um,
0: well, you know, if something I've written about, about the sort of the, the distinction between science and activism, I think um, I care very much about uh, science of consequence, science that's engaged in the uh, realities of um, day-to-day life and science that leads to change that improves people's lives. I do think that the act of producing science should be separate from the act of activism, but I see no reason why science should not provide the data that can then be used by those whose primary Um, engagement as activism to generate change. And I think of activism in its classic meaning as a path to change. And I think a consequential science should provide the data that leads to change.
1: So final question. I've done a lot of work um, over the last sort of 25 years or so in the UK on mental health, trying to close the gap between research and practice. And if you look at the science, if you look at evidence-based mental health science, we know that the gap between research and practice is about 17 years. So it takes 17 years on average for a new paper published in JAMA Network Open to actually reach the front line. What is happening now in the complexity science arena that's going to close that gap?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm aware of those data and I'm not sure that uh, we are closing that gap very effectively, To be to be frank. I do think that there has been a... Covid creates a moment of awareness um, for the importance of science, and I think uh, also a moment of greater willingness to experiment and to um, and to grapple with the um, fact that some things we need to do differently. So I am optimistic, and um, and I also I'm also not, you know, the 17 year data, which I know, uh, in some respects, the data are too categorical. It's like you know X. And then becomes a change in X. I think things shift much more organically, and and uh, I think a lot happens in those seventeen years, um, even if we can say, well, that's sort of when one reaches the, you know, the checkered flag. But a lot happens in the interim. Mm-hmm.